Well, it's a great privilege to be here today and to uh, to speak with you rather than to you. And uh, we're on a journey together, those of us who follow God, to discover what it is, to honour Him with our lives, to worship Him all week and not just on Sundays. And yet there might be some of you here today who are not in that place and maybe you're inquiring and searching. I'll tell you a little bit about my journey as we explore the continuation of a theme that you've been looking at. We are uh, talking about what God's Word is and uh, our part in God's Word unfolding as a story that touches the ages. For me, that journey started at age 16, where I moved from being in a traditional church and making my faith about religion to suddenly finding that it was about relationship and a relationship that saw me fall in love with the person of Jesus and saw him transform my life. There was undoubtedly a little bit of a helping hand in the form of some miracles that happened. I couldn't explain them. And people showed me that Jesus is alive today. He still heals people today. He still changes hearts today. And I saw some of the evidence of that in people. And I couldn't explain their story. And it had me at the very time when many of my friends were pulling away from God, pulling toward him. And it started a journey of now several decades of following him with all my heart. We don't just come to church on Sunday to do the religious thing and then go to the lives that we want to lead. Because when we have a relationship, we are changed from the inside out. I've got four children and they range in ages from 11 to 19 and uh, most of them like sport and I have one uh, daughter who, though she does and loves basketball, she wasn't the slightest bit interested in the football. So I reasoned with her that if I could get back in time to watch the grand final, I would take her up to the tulip farm in the hills. And uh, we had a camera each and we're taking some photos and just enjoying time together. But you see, it's a special place for me because my grandfather started the tulip farm. And so I spent many uh, a day in my uh, childhood years serving there, dressing up in a Dutch national costume and people would take my photo and I'd get uh, my $2 a day for helping in the family business. But there was one particular time I remember taking a phone call in my grandparents' house, which was until recently on site. And as I took the phone call as a child, I realized the person on the other end had something important to say I needed to take a message. There was a large painting hanging over the little desk on which the phone resided. And I reached to the ledge of the painting and grabbed a pen, found a piece of paper, I made the note, and I put the pen back. And as the call finished, I looked up at the painting, I noticed it many times before, and I said to myself, gee, this thing is ugly. But you see, a few years later, my grandfather decided he would see if the painting was worth, he had it valued, and discovered that it was a Russian masterpiece worth back then $180,000. I thought, my goodness, where did that come from? Good job, Granddad, we're set for life. But of course, he might have been set for life if he had have used the painting for his own purposes. Maybe if he'd cashed it in and he'd taken the money, it could have set him up. He had this farm, this business that also made him money. But he wasn't that type of a person. He gave most of it away. Sad to say that when he died, I got nothing. Because most of it was given to charities, 
to helping people relocate from post-war Europe and he gave all of the gate proceeds from his business to the Red Cross. And of course, if we have the attitude that money solves our problems, we live in a Western society where money seems to answer everything, then we can look through the lenses that are entirely secular and commercial and consumerist and forget that God wants us to look at life with different lenses. To be truly set for life needs us to understand that the meaning is not about money, it's about building with the right foundations. And if you and I have got a relationship with God, if he's truly transforming us from the inside out, we need to see the way he sees. And we need to reflect the heart that he has. And that doesn't mean being irresponsible. It doesn't mean not having money. But what it means is that my life is not built the way the rest of the world says it should be. Yours and my life is built on some other foundation the assurance of our success. Jesus said in Luke 12, 34, and I'll get to the Revelation passage we just read in a moment, but he said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what do you treasure? I could just about guarantee that for some of you, when you follow the tennis in January, you talk a lot about tennis. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. Jesus also said that. But you see, if you want your heart to speak the right things, your heart needs to be given to the right things. And your heart will be consumed with what you treasure, what is important to you. And if it is finance, every decision that you make, your consuming passion will reflect that. You could say that you're a generous person. That will be measured as someone looks at your bank statements. Where is your treasure today? What is your foundation on what is your life built if you say you have a relationship with God? Could somebody accuse you of being a Christian and marshal up enough evidence to convict you? Many people don't live by convictions that are centered on the Bible. They live by some other set of convictions and perhaps ironically could then not be convinced of truly being Christian. For me at age 16... I had to face the fact that my life was not going to be like that of my friends and other people because I had a conviction that if I was to be convicted of being a Christian, I would want there to be enough evidence and I wanted my heart to pursue the things of God and for the treasure of my life to be grounded in God's word and what it said. It forced me to look at the Bible, not just as a bunch of stories, not just as God's story that I was privileged to be a part of, but because I was a part of his story, I would allow his word to not only infuse my life, but to change it. I would allow his word to regulate and govern my choices and shape my conviction and show other people when looking at my life that it was reflective of the God I served and that my life would hopefully lead them to him. When Jesus said that there was a merchant who found a pearl of great price, sold everything that he had to buy it, he used that story to illustrate the kingdom of heaven. Following God means you give everything to this cause. That your financial commitments, your time commitment, the way you use the very gifts that God has given you, provide the evidence to others of a life that has changed, a life that's successful, and a life that when it partners with God's story is one 
of substance. It's one of worth. Aren't you tired of people looking at you if you're a Christian here today and saying, well, that Christianity stuff is nice for you, but that's a bit of a crutch. And if you think you need that, you have it, but it's not for me. My answer to people is Christianity is not a bad crutch if you're crippled, and we all are. That if we face up to the fact that we are on this earth but for a short moment in eternity, and we are put here to find the true value of life, to convey to others the importance of following Christ. And if we don't have the correct foundation with which to build, if we allow Jesus Christ to have entrance into our heart on Sunday, and he does not fundamentally make us generous on Monday, he doesn't cause us to serve the poor on Tuesday, if we're not driven to give on Wednesday, And what difference does it make? And how could other people truly look at this thing called Christianity and find it inspiring and want to follow it? We live in a society where barely a half of Australians purport to be Christian and their Christianity doesn't take them to church on Sundays. It's not a vital, alive faith. It's nominal. Just 10 years ago, we had one in six Australians going to church regularly. That number is dropping all the time. Yet there's still more people that attend church every week that are in both major codes of football in this country. We sometimes hide and cower and feel that our Christian faith is something to be ashamed of. We should be showcasing with a life that's proudly lived in the service of our Lord that he is still alive. He's still on the throne and prayer still changes. So what do you treasure? Is your treasure built on the word of God? Is it built on your bank statement? In Psalm 119, famous for being the longest chapter of the Bible, its theme you would think pretty important, and it's the word of God. One translation of Psalm 119 verse 11, it says in shaping success, in having a successful life, the psalmist says, I have treasured and stored your word in my heart. How about you? You treasure it and store it in your heart to create a great foundation. Goes on in verse 72 to say that the word of God is better than a thousand coins of gold. So if we're going to be set for life, but not financially, set for life by building it on the foundations of the Bible, the Bible which is a book unlike any other, the Bible which has stood the test of time, withstood all the accusations of atheists, It's been verified archaeologically, scientifically, and historically. And it shows the unchanging and thematic message of God's love and grace and compassion, his desire to change society. If we show that that change has happened first in us, then it's an exciting thing to be set for life when it's set the right way. As we turn now to Revelation chapter 1, it gives us the very keys for how this is to happen, by giving us the testimony of John, who was the beloved disciple, the best friend on earth of Jesus. And yet he has a fresh encounter. He doesn't just go on old memories. He now encounters the risen Jesus in his awesome glory. And John shows us how it is that we respond to the Jesus whom we have relationship, to truly have a life set on the right foundations. He shows us in this passage that he's exiled on Patmos, 
a small island of a mere 34 square kilometres, probably a political prisoner of sort, is imprisoned for his boldness in sharing his faith, showing that it's so important he doesn't care what people do to him. And he has this vision, and it's the, the vision that says in passing that includes the revelation of one who is like a son of man. Jesus used that phrase, the son of man, to describe himself when he was on earth. I used to think it was because as the son of God, he's also trying to show people that he is fully. One of the uh, great revelations of the Bible is that when Jesus came to earth, he had to be fully God to be able to conquer the power of death and sin. He had to be fully God so that he could qualify to die in our place. He had to be fully God so that he would be free of sin and therefore didn't have to die for his own. But he had to be fully man so that he could take our place. A like-for-like exchange. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5 says, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. You have a relationship with God. It is because you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, of his life on a cross at Calvary where he died sinless so that he could take in his own body the penalty for our wrongdoing, no matter how small. This morning, if you have a relationship with God, it's not just a relationship with a spiritual buddy in the sky. It's not just a relationship with somebody who's out there somewhere. It's not just a relationship with somebody who makes sense or was an important figure of history. It's a relationship with one who took our sin in his body And because he did it and then rose from the dead and broke the power of that sin, it had no hold on us. You commit your life to Jesus Christ. You have a relationship with him where you accept him as savior and that requires him to also be Lord. You have a revelation of him and fall at his feet. He's not just a friend. He's not just a figure of history. We submit ourselves to him. We have this revelation of him who is the son of man as well as the Son of God. What I came to realize is the Son of Man, its origin as a phrase was found in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It was a statement to people that when the Son of Man comes, he will be the Messiah. He will be the Savior and Lord that you need to find. And many Jews are still looking for their Messiah, but he has been revealed to us. He was revealed to John. And I wonder, is he being revealed afresh to you today and tomorrow and the next day because you have relationship. The first key that we get to being set for life from this passage is the one of submission. It's John who fell at Jesus' feet and it says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. You know, it's a pretty important key that if you're going to enjoy this relationship with God, you actually yield to him. It's no accident that many people have come to church on Sunday, week in and week out, for most of their lives since becoming a Christian, because they actually believe that puts them in a place to not only worship and thank God, but to meet with Him, to hear from Him. I find it quite perplexing that many parents today would say they're so busy raising their children that they'll get to church when they can. And then what's more, they say, I don't want to pressure my children. I want them to discover for themselves and even choose for themselves whether or not they go to church. I say to them, do you do that with school? I mean, do you let the kids go to school if they feel like it? There, there, dear, you stay in bed today. 
You watch the NBA on television. You can play your video games because we wouldn't want to force school on you, would we? Of course you don't do that. You get them dressed. You push them out the door. You threaten like I did with my kids sometimes. If they gave me any grief, I'd take them to school in their undies if they didn't get ready on time. Because you want them to go and you want them to learn and you've got to build the routine. We do that with children as an act of discipleship on Sundays. We take them to church. And every time you make a decision that it's all right not to go, you communicate to your children, to your friends, to everybody at work who asks what you did on Sunday, you communicate to them that it is an optional extra that's not foundational to your life. Submission requires intentional choices. Do you prioritize the Lord's Day? Do you prioritize getting in the presence of God and encountering Him in relationship that actually means you enjoy His presence? Another way that we submit to God, of course, is by submitting to His Word. Again, that's intentional. For me, there was a book that was very helpful called The Divine Mentor, and it outlined a system for reading the Bible every day that went beyond mere explanation of the Bible and started to have me hearing from God. Now, it's not the be-all and end-all, it's just one system. But I had to move from just reading the Bible to learn it, from submitting to sermons I was hearing, explain it, to get to a point where God was actually speaking to me. That just as God revealed himself to John on Patmos, Jesus wants to reveal himself to you each and every day. And if you're not prioritizing time with the Bible to hear from God, you're setting yourself up without the right foundation. I talked to a man who asked to see me. His marriage was in trouble. And he said that his wife was possibly going to leave him. They'd been fighting all the time. He was sensing contempt. She was blaming him for everything that went wrong. And he was clearly in a panic. I said, how are you praying? He says, I put on some worship music and I cry out to God, help me. I said, okay, that's desperation, but where's your faith? What's it grounded on? I said, do you know faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God, Romans 10, 17 says. The Bible fuels faith for your marriage, for answered prayer. Where is your faith? He said to me sheepishly, I haven't read the Bible for a long time. I got him to go and get it, and we joked about blowing dust off the thing, and I said, now let's open it. So I'm going to take you to Psalm 1, because I read that this morning. What we're going to do is to be in the Spirit. We're going to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit, who wrote this through the biblical authors, will inspire you with a verse. So I led him in prayer, asked him to read the passage, and a verse suddenly stood out to him. The Lord watches over the ways of the righteous. I said, who's righteous? He said, I don't know. Who wrote the Psalms? I said, no, no, no. I said, are you righteous? What does that mean? It means you're in right standing with God don't feel like it. Jesus died for you to make you righteous. And I showed him that 2 Corinthians 5 passage. He said, oh, I suppose I am a Christian. So you need to get a good view of yourself. See yourself how God sees you, that you're a champion and successful because God smiles on you with favor. I said, what's more, he's revealed a verse to you. He wants to watch over your way and make you see in your marriage. Do you believe that? He says, I'm struggling. I said, I know you are. But God has revealed to you for a reason. And I wonder if we could pray and believe that God wants to watch over your marriage. Put your marriage in his hands. I led him in prayer. Me two days later and says, you wouldn't believe the turnaround. 
He said, my wife's suddenly been nice to me. She's smiling. We've planned a date night soon. We haven't argued since she came. He says, what a coincidence, eh? Could have reached through the phone and slapped him. It's not a coincidence. said, we prayed, God spoke to you, and God is answering your prayer. He walked into church, swings with his wife. They'd had a wonderful time the last week, and, and it was incredible seeing how what he thought was doom and gloom could be turned around to God's word and allowed it to become the genuine foundation of the change. The method uses a, a, a soap principle. It's, we're told in Ephesians to wash with the water of the word of God. When we wash, a little soap helps. You identify the one verse that stands out as you pray and ask God to show it to you. Observe what you notice it saying. And then very importantly, the third step is the application. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to believe different? What action are you going to take? The final step is the prayer. You pray to God about the change that you're going to own. You pray to God about what you're going to trust. Many of you have prayed for many. But could I ask you, if you're just praying for car park spaces, if you're just praying for what you want, it might be time to think of get a revelation of God and what he wants. See, Jesus afresh, and he speaks to you primarily through his word. Not through tingle, not through emotional experience. He speaks through his word, which is unchanging, the sure foundation of your faith. The second key we see from the passage we just read is that of encounter. In Revelation 1.12, John turned to see the voice. He deliberately positioned himself to receive from Jesus and then beheld him in all his glory. Do you turn to And when you do, do you actually move from trust and obedience to encounter where you hear him? Can I suggest to you, if you're not hearing the voice of God, if God's not speaking to you about your world, Firstly, you need to submit to him to give that process a chance. But secondly, it's got to move from process to person. You need to know him. You need a relationship with Jesus. And if you're not encountering that, he's not speaking to you. You need to make a time to speak to someone through whom God is speaking. Because if you don't experience the joy of it, church will become just a club. Your membership will just become about friends and routine and doing good works in the community. Our faith is not built on good works. The good works flow from the relationship upon which our faith is built. Your faith is not built on whether your kids are having a good experience here or whether you've got friends. Those things are an overflow of hearts filled with joy so that when you come to church, you're singing out of the overflow of a relationship that's transforming you Monday to Saturday and long before you. How we think about God and what he says to us is an important part of the encounter. I received this gift card earlier in the year. The gift card said I had until the end of March to spend $100. So I received it from somebody who lived miles away from the shopping center, wasn't going to use it, realized it was about to expire and said, there's still a month left on this card. I want you to have it. And it was a gift, a thank you, and I appreciate it. I went to the shopping center Sorry, sir, you can't buy those trousers. The card has expired. I said, no, no, no. We're still in March. All good. Sorry, sir, you're going to have to go to the concierge because this card has expired. Went there, I said, what's going on? Oh, sorry, sir, it was written on the card as the 3rd of the 18th, March. But in actual fact, the computer programmed it to expire at the end 
of February. I said, uh, I think I might be missing something here. Doesn't it matter what's written on the card? No, sir, it matters what's written on the computer. You'll have to take it up with head office. Well, fortunately, there was someone in head office with probably the sense enough to justify their position there who saw it my way, reissued the card, and I was able to spend it. And it got me thinking how this reflects the way many of us use the Bible. We see what's written on the card in the book, the black and white text on the page we read. and We're telling ourselves it doesn't matter what's written. It matters what's in the program of it. And maybe the computer's been shaping and doing your life for, and you've come to believe certain things about yourself, to believe certain things about your marriage, your job, the people that you're seeing that are giving you difficulty. You've come to believe certain things that the Bible speaks to differently and you read it and you hear from God, you're submitting to it and you just don't believe it. Your encounter of God, the person of Jesus, needs you to hear what he is saying to you and to accept that what is put in writing overrides what is programmed. This might be a very simple revelation to some of you this morning, but revelation is what matters. It's not the explanation of what makes sense to you and your mind. It is the revelation of God, which never contradicts the Bible, which might make sense one day, but you embrace as God speaking to you as the truth unchanging. You start to accept that what you don't see with your natural eyes, you can see with the eyes of faith. When I took my family to the Blue Mountains and they're surveying the canyon of trees and appreciating the grandeur of God's creation, it was all except my youngest. He's splashing around in puddles on the ground and so delighted at the fun that he was having, he couldn't care about what he saw. When he was eventually hoisted up to the rail, the trees actually didn't. He wanted to go back to the puddles. You know, it's all right when you're less mature, when you're young in your faith, to look and see what's immediate. But people of mature faith to lift their eyes, to see further than what they've ever seen before. As we see as Jesus, your submission to him is to lead you to an encounter. You behold his magnificence. What maybe you've never seen before. And if you're not seeing it, can I ask you to talk to someone about that? It matters. As I close, I point you to the third and final observation we get out of this passage that being set for life as a Christian when your faith is built on the foundation of God's word. We see John who beholds Jesus and Jesus comes to him, lays his right hand on him, says, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the key of death and Hades, which is another word for hell. If Jesus has triumphed over death and hell, there is nothing for us to fear. And when you are in fear, when life is not working, allow yourself as you encounter Jesus in your responsive obedience to what he says to you to actually be fundamentally transformed. You know, John was encouraged to write the vision down that Jesus gave to him. Some of you maybe need to write down in a journal what Jesus, or at least ponder and reflect on it, and allow it to soak deep to change your life. Because as you are a disciple of Jesus, you are required as a hallmark of that discipleship, Jesus said, not only to be baptized, he said, teach them 
to obey all that I have commanded you. Being a disciple includes obeying what Jesus says. And as you obey because you've encountered him, you do what he says. You cling to your faith. You hold on to what doesn't make sense. You live the life of faith and not just the obedience, but allow the obedience to lift your vision to see what you've never seen before. And guess what? You don't need to fear. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 says we walk by faith and not by sight. When you see storms around you, life's not making sense. It's time to lift your vision, to see with the eyes of faith and to recognize as you're clinging to the surety of God's word, then though all around you is sinking sand and Christ the solid rock. It's not just something we sing on Sundays. It changes our life between them. One more story to illustrate this businessman I was speaking to who was also not reading the Bible. He was also, when he prayed, getting friends around him, getting their support. I'm praying for you, brother. He would, he would put on his work. There was no confidence. There was no faith-filled. And now he needed a client owed him $20,000, just gone bankrupt. He said, my business hasn't been going that long, Rob. And I can't afford to be without that 20000 My back is against the wall and I'm in serious trouble. They've told me I'm not getting a cent of that money. What do I do? So let me ask you, what do you do? And I heard all about the ways that he was praying. I said, you're firing off a gun of prayer. Let's put some bullets in it. So got him to get his Bible. He in fact bought an exercise book he used as a journal. He hadn't written anything in it yet. We went through the same experience. Praise the Holy Spirit. He reads. He holds on to it. Two days later, phone call. What's just happened? Actually, I think I am. He says, I'm getting all the money. All of it. He said, That's unbelievable. He said, you came and we prayed about that stuff. I said, yeah, and you prayed too that God would do a miracle. And he has. He further confessed, well, not much. And now as the first, I guess, statement of generosity that overflowed from his encounter with God, he proved the transformation and he wrote the biggest list to God in gratitude you know that guy from that moment forward had other problems that started to surface and test what he, but he proved the foundation by going to the process and realizing that it's not just about going through the motions, but it's that when you, you then encounter something that will transform your life, it will transform your journey. Do I have answers to every prayer I pray? No. God is not doing my bidding. I'm not some little child who has to get my way every time. But I tell you what, when there's a need, nothing like that need drives me to prayer. I seek God and say, Jesus, and without you, my life is stuck. And how about you? I just want to close in prayer now. Before we commit to a, a written response, I just want to ask whether there's something maybe that God is prompting you about right now. I'll just allow you to dwell on, to reflect on for just a moment as I lead you in. Be some time and some space yourself just to write on that response card to you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus. The privilege of being your chief, the privilege of encountering you, of having the ability to stand before you in prayer with the freedom to do it, just as I have the freedom not to do it. And Lord, I make the choice and we make the choice to stand before the one out of whose mouth comes that sharp double-edged sword, which the Bible says is your word. We're going to lay a hold of that sharp double-edged sword speaking to us today piercing our hearts lord i pray that what you reveal to us those things that you are speaking into our lives those points of need, 
We wouldn't be driven by the need, but we'd take the need to you, the one who meets. This morning we would submit the risen Christ who's changed the lives and hearts of so many of us here. Lord, we want to encounter you afresh today. I pray that you'd speak to us by your spirit. Amen.